All right, turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. It can be found on page 981 in the Pew Bible. Philippians 3, 1 through 3, page 981. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would Open up our hearts and minds to receive your word, that we would remember who we are in Christ, and that we would ultimately rejoice in the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Is she a believer? Is he a Christian? These are common questions that I have run into over the years and continue to hear and be asked about. To which I begin by saying, good question. How would you go about answering these questions? Are there any characteristics or qualities that identify a true Christian? How would you describe or define a Christian? In our text this morning, Paul addresses this, he will address this, as he describes our identity as the true people of God. And what we will see is that these questions have some significance because Paul is making evaluations on whom we are to imitate and follow. We are to discern between what is true and what is false. We are to reject counterfeit teaching and we are to hold fast to what is genuine and authentic. Paul has laid out several examples in this letter that we are to imitate when it comes to walking in a manner worthy of the gospel through a life of unity and humility and sacrificial service. Jesus serves as the perfect example in 2, 5 through 11. We saw that. And then Paul was an example in 2, 17 and 18. And then Timothy in 2, 19 through 24. And then Epaphroditus in 2, 25 through 30. And now, Paul warns us against false teachers. And then he highlights the distinguishing marks of our identity. But before he does so, he will first command the church to rejoice. So first, rejoice in the Lord. Notice verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. When you hear the word finally, what might, might come to your mind is a conclusion. You might hear me say, I say it every week, third and finally. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, he's got about 10 minutes left for his final point. So he's about done in 10 minutes or so. It it often brings some sort of climax, some sort of end, or even an additional point. And I think that's how Paul is using it here. He's not necessarily closing his letter, but instead he's saying, in addition to, as far as the rest is concerned. And then he exhorts the church to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Now think about this for a moment. 
in the context of opposition, in the context of conflict, in the context of difficulty, persecution, and, and a warning about their opponents, which he's going to get to, comes the call to rejoice in the Lord. We've seen the call to rejoice throughout the letter. It serves as one of the main themes. Some consider Philippians the epistle of joy. We've titled this series in Philippians, A Joyful Partnership in the Gospel, to, to tie together the various themes that we see in the book. Philippians 1.4, Paul makes his prayer with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. When Paul reminds his, the church that he is imprisoned for the sake of Christ, and it's actually served to advance the gospel, he's observed that some have preached Christ in order to afflict him while he's in prison, but even in that, he rejoices because Christ is proclaimed in Philippians 1.18. And in 1.25, Paul is convinced that he will remain with them for their progress and joy in the faith. And in 2.2, he calls them to complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. So joy comes through their unity and their love. And then in 2.18, even if Paul's situation ends in his death, he is glad and rejoices because of their sacrificial service. And he encourages them to rejoice with him. And now rejoice in the Lord. So, so what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? We've seen from Paul that his occasion for rejoicing was rooted in the gospel, in the proclamation of Christ, in their partnership and financial support, in their progress in the faith as they grow in unity and humility and sacrificial service. And even Though his own situation is difficult, there is opposition. And even in the midst of his opposition, he can still rejoice, which shows that rejoicing is not tied to one's circumstances. It is rooted in the Lord. Jesus, then, is the, the source of joy. Jesus is the object of his joy. And Jesus, and his work in our lives and the lives of others, becomes the reason for rejoicing. To rejoice in the Lord is to see and experience Christ as the greatest treasure in your life because of your relationship with him. It means that you find joy in all that comes from him and all that points to him, no matter the circumstance, no matter the circumstance. For those of us who have been blessed to have children, when you think of joy, or rejoicing, you might think of the birth of a child. Right? We rejoice in the child. The first time you lay, lay eyes on your child, you're filled with joy. You're filled with satisfaction. And it doesn't mean that you don't have pain. Right? The women know this. There's real pain. But I imagine, for the moms, imagine, the joy in the child makes the pain manageable and worth it. 
Because your focus is upon them and your love for them and your affection for them and your delight in them. There's an overwhelming affection for the child that consumes you because of your relationship with them and to them. The child, we hear this said often, right? The child has their heart, right? The child has your heart. You see, when we are finding our joy in something, and as Christians in the Lord, it impacts what we do and how we view our circumstances, and it reveals what we value. So here's some questions we can ask. Are you rejoicing in the Lord? Is Christ your greatest treasure? Do you say like the new song? We sung a new song this morning. Do you say like the song, this weary heart finds all it needs in ever only Jesus? I trade my treasure and all my rewards, Jesus, to know you and then know you more. Do you believe that? Or are you seeking to find satisfaction and joy in something else or in someone else? You see, Paul says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. To remind his readers to rejoice in the Lord is no trouble. It's not a burden. It's not difficult or exhausting. And it's safe for them. Why? Why? Because Paul recognizes how easy it is for us to be robbed of joy in the Lord, especially in the midst of conflict. Right? There's relational conflict in Philippi. Focusing on external circumstances can rob us of joy in the Lord. And when we dwell on the external things in our lives, or even trials or difficulties, or in fact, even achievements, when we focus on our own achievements, apart from Christ as the priority, we will struggle with joy. We will struggle to find joy in Jesus Christ. Paul also recognizes that a failure to rejoice in the Lord lends itself to turning to other things for satisfaction. To write the same things, notice what he says, is safe. Is safe for them. It's safe for you. Rejoicing in the Lord is safe because joy in Christ protects you from being led astray. I don't know about you, but we are more prone. I'm convinced that we are more prone to turn to other things or even to drift into false teaching if we're not finding our joy and contentment in God. So Paul writes the same thing. He highlights rejoicing and a warning not to be led astray. Paul's concern is their spiritual growth in Christ. And I would just add, repetition is no trouble for a teacher. Repetition is safe for students. Right? When you instruct someone in something, whatever it is, whether the child is learning their letters 
or learning math or, or, you're, or you're giving instruction on playing the piano or you're learning new equipment or new technology or for me when it was giving baseball and softball lessons. Repetition is essential for growth, right? Just repeat over and over and over again. The same is true when it comes to growing in our relationship with Christ. Repetition in God's word is safe and not a burden. And I think sometimes we think we have to come up with something new or, or clever or creative. I, I feel, personally, I feel this pull during Easter every single year. When what we ultimately need to hear is the same thing over and over and over and over again. So, remind yourself of the gospel over and over and over again. Hear the same truth that Christ suffered and died on a cross for sinners, and that he was raised to overthrow the grave. And now he reigns, and he ever lives to intercede for us. And by faith in him, all our sins are forgiven. We are freed to serve him and live for him. And one day, we will dwell with him in a new heaven and new earth. Repetition also shows what's a priority. It's safe for you. Rejoicing in the Lord is safe for you. Warnings. Did you know this? Warnings are safe for you. Which leads to my second point. Resist false teaching. Look with me at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So Paul moves from rejoicing to now a warning. To write about warnings are also safe because they protect us from possible danger and threats. When you see a warning on the side of the road, do not enter, or this is the one I use with the youth, bridge is out, it's intended to move us to action, to avoid the danger so that we are not harmed in any way. So Paul warns the church against counterfeit teachers so that we might resist them and reject what they're teaching and not be led astray. He says, look out, look out, look out, watch out, beware of the dogs. Beware of the dogs. Now, we've, we've, we've observed in the past that dogs in that day in the ancient world were not a man's best friend. They didn't view them as that friendly, cuddly pet that we have today, well, not me, but several of you have friendly, cuddly little pets in your house. Dogs in that day were dirty. They were wild animals. They were scavengers. They'd roam around the cities and feed on garbage. They were dangerous. They were unclean. And that's the sense here as well. The term was used for the Gentiles, for non-Jews, for those who were unclean and outside the covenant. And what's remarkable here is that Paul is actually using it for these false teachers. For Jews who were claiming to follow Christ, but saying it was necessary to keep the Jewish customs and practices in order to be saved. 
So specifically within this context, we see that they were teaching that the Christian must be circumcised in order to be saved. I'll unpack this further in my final point when we address our identity in verse 3. But what they were requiring, at least I want you to notice, they were requiring external acts and moral achievement as the basis for being right with God. They were teaching that we must earn God's acceptance through faith and law-keeping. The Gentile was being told that to belong to God, one must go through the door of Judaism. The Gentile would have to abide by the rites and customs of a Jew in order to be justified by God. That's what was taught. And therefore, these false teachers would have rejected Paul's teaching that they were declared right with God on the basis of what Christ has done for us on the cross, not our own, not our own work. So Paul is saying, they are dogs. They are the outsider. They are outside the covenant. They're the ones that need to be cleansed by Christ because they are spiritually unclean. And in fact, they are evil workers, evil doers. They, they pursued a right standing with God as if it were based on works. And then what happens is that by seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God. And they turn away from Christ and they're actually rejecting him and teaching others to do the same. That's why they're called evil workers. Though they might look clean on the outside, right, like whitewashed tombs, inwardly they were dead man's bones. On the outside, they look really good. They look moral, upright, much like the Pharisee. We studied the Pharisee and the tax collector, the parable, recently in our Wednesday night. The Pharisee, much like the Pharisee, God, I thank you that I'm not like so-and-so. I do this. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I have. I do this and I give that. Moral, external righteousness, external religion. And I'm not saying it doesn't matter how you live, okay? I'm not saying that. Obedience to Christ's commands should be evident in our lives. We should be bearing fruit and living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Whether it involves praying, reading our Bibles, going to church, sacrificially giving and serving others, evangelizing the lost. But if someone teaches that these things serve as the basis for our right standing, it is false. It is counterfeit. These are to flow out of a heart that trusts in Christ and out of a love for him because of the relationship that we already have with him. No religious practice can save a person from their sins. Only Christ and trusting in him. Paul calls this group of false teachers mutilators of the flesh. 
mutilators of the flesh. This is a play on words here with, with circumcision in verse 3. Some of your translations might say false circumcision and then true circumcision. Mutilators. Mutilators. It was a common pagan practice in that day to cut oneself. Mutilation of the flesh as an act of worship in order to get the attention of one of the so-called gods. And what Paul observes is that to require the external act of circumcision for salvation is merely mutilation of the flesh. So, what are some implications that we can take from this? Because... We don't have the specific challenge or temptation of accepting circumcision as being in order to be right with God. I don't, I don't think anyone here struggles with that. Well, what, can we, what we can learn from this is be aware of the existence and danger of false teaching in general. Right? Be on the lookout for those who would seek to add something to faith in Christ in order to be saved. Be on the lookout for those who would seek to take away something from the work of Christ. And be on the lookout for those who would divide your loyalty away from Christ. Resist any notion of moral achievement or religious activity as the basis for our right standing with God. Now, faith will express itself in love and obedience to Christ, and it will be the evidence that we know Christ. And third and finally, remember your identity. Remember your identity. Notice verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul reminds them here of their identity in Christ. After warning them about the reality of false teachers that they're to resist, he reminds them of who they are in Christ. Look out, look out, look out for here's your identity. This is who you are. We are the circumcision. Okay, so, so here we see a little more of the context, right? The specific context and the distinguishing qualities between the true Christians contrasted with the false teaching. Paul draws our attention to circumcision. You recall from the Old Testament that circumcision was the covenant sign given to Abraham Back in Genesis 17, it was tied to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, it's important to note, when you study the covenants, and you study the Abrahamic covenant, so 12, God calls him, 15, God cuts the covenant, and then 17, we have God again blessing Abraham, calling him to be the father of many nations, changes his name, and then he gives this, this uh, covenant sign of circumcision. It's important to note, and I think this is what was missed in that day, is that the covenant promise and belonging to God came before Abraham was circumcised, not after. Okay. 
can read about this in Romans 4, 9 through 12. And it shows that the priority is upon faith, not circumcision, as the basis for one's right standing with God. So whether a person was a Jew or a Gentile, if they came to believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, they were declared to be right with God. God added the right of circumcision to an already existing covenant relationship. It served as a reminder that God would keep his promises to his people. Right? Often the covenants came with signs. Right? We think of the covenant made with Noah and creation, the sign of the rainbow that God was promised to never destroy the earth again with a flood. And now this covenant sign. We also see that in Joshua 5, 2 through 9, that circumcision marked the people off as belonging to God. And it consecrated them for his service. So, what's the purpose of circumcision? It was a physical sign that marked out the nation and to distinguish them as God's people. Under the, under the old covenant, the covenant with Moses, Circumcision also pointed to the need of a spiritual, the spiritual reality of the spiritually circumcised heart, which would result in complete devotion to God in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And this pointed forward to new covenant realities that we have by faith in Christ. So, regardless of whether a person had been circumcised physically, true believers here are described as the circumcision. The true circumcision. Listen to the parallel in Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. There's a lot more that we could say about this. But what I at least want us to see is that those who belong to God by faith are the true circumcision. This is our identity. Notice how Paul describes our identity in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So we see three qualities, three characteristics as the true circumcision that, that mark us all out as those who belong to God. We worship by the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. So, true believers worship by the Spirit of God. To worship by the Spirit of God doesn't merely refer to what we do here on Sunday morning. Or even what we do during our time of singing. Right? Worship involves every aspect of the Sunday service. We worship God as we listen to God's word, as we hear it read, as we sing songs, in our corporate worship, our corporate prayer, in the preaching of the word. But it's more than that. Worship involves every aspect of our lives. Paul says in Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, your spiritual act of service. 
The idea is that our entire life is to involve worship and service that is dependent upon the Spirit. We are to serve in the strength that God supplies by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God produces our worship. The Spirit generates our worship. It is an internal, supernatural work of God in our lives that we cannot produce. Now the question we might ask, who do we worship? Who is the focus of our worship or service? If the Spirit of God is the agent and the power that enables us to worship and serve, who's he pointing to? The next characteristic. Those who belong to God glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the object of our worship. True believers glory in Christ. They boast in him. They exalt him. This means that we seek to proclaim his greatness. We draw people's attention to him and not to us. In a genuine Christian's life, in in the life of a genuine Christian, all the credit for who we are and what we do goes to him goes to Christ. Christians make much of Jesus. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Even when we sin and fail and fall short, which we often do, we glory in his grace and mercy. Have you thought about that? We point people, even in our sin, as we confess it, we point people to trust in his work and not in ours. Though our sins may be many, his grace is more. That's pointing to him. And then lastly, the true people of God Put no confidence in the flesh. This is a contrasting statement with glorying in Christ. To put no confidence in the flesh means that we don't rely upon ourselves or our good works or our moral achievement or our religious activity. And we're going to see this further in further detail in the, in the next week. We don't put our confidence in what we do or think or feel, but in Christ alone. So, as we close... Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. And what I've just described concerning the characteristics and qualities that mark us out as those who truly belong to God, they don't describe you. Maybe you've given in to false teaching that, that, that says you must earn God's acceptance by doing good works. If that's you, instead of trying to produce better worship or better service or be better at putting your confidence not in your flesh, all right, I just have to try to be more humble. 
I would encourage you to confess it to God. Confess the sin of trying to be a moral person to gain God's acceptance. Ask for forgiveness and trust in Jesus Christ alone and his finished work on the cross. If you're a believer, which most of you are, I pray everyone would be, and you're struggling to rejoice. Maybe you're here this morning, you're struggling to rejoice in the Lord. Or maybe, you're, maybe you've noticed a little pattern in your life of just trying to, to do religious activity to gain God's acceptance. Or maintain God's favor, right? I think sometimes with Christians, we don't seek to earn God's favor. We try to maintain God's favor by what we do. Ask the Lord, if you're struggling with rejoicing Lord, ask the Lord to give you a fresh sense of joy in his presence. Ask the Lord to help you see him as the delight and treasure of your soul. And remember your identity in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ. Being reminded of our identity is safe for us because it not only protects us from false teaching, but it reminds us that our confidence is in Jesus and in his work. And it enables us to rejoice in him no matter our circumstances. Let's continue to look to him and find Christ as our hope, as our joy, and as our delight. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we recognize that the call, the command to rejoice in the Lord, we cannot do in our own willpower. We cannot do in our own strength. We pray that your spirit would work in us a delight, a joy, a contentment in Christ. That we would rejoice in the Lord no matter our circumstances. And we know that many here have various trials, various difficulties, various conflicts that they're in. And so they're finding it hard to rejoice in the Lord. I pray that you would, by your spirit, remind them of who they are in Christ. Remind them of what Christ has done for them on the cross. And might that lead them to rejoice and look to Jesus in their circumstance. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.